Steve Pronto is the first Pickleball Hall of Famer I've had here on the Pickleball Fire podcast. So today we talk about who is being inducted into the Pickleball Hall of Fame this year in 2021, and also three advanced strategies to help your pickleball game. So let's get to the intro to hear from Steve. Welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, where it's all about pickleball. Today, I'd like to welcome to the Pickleball Fire podcast, Steve Peranto. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing great. I am so happy to have you on the podcast. Ironically, I have actually interviewed an NBA Hall of Famer before a Pickleball Hall of Famer. Wow. Was that uh, Golden State's uh, Rick Barry? It was Mr. Rick Barry, but yeah. I'm so happy to have a Pickleball Hall of Famer on the podcast. So let's go ahead and you know start where I usually do. Tell me a little bit about how and when you got started in the game. I always tell people I was just the, in the right place at the right time with the right father. So 1974, I was a freshman at Green River Community College, and I was on the tennis team there. And in the fall of that year, I was, so I was an 18-year-old. They had uh, in the back gym, people were playing with wooden paddles and these wiffle balls. And we heard it was pickleball and we'd get a lot of rain in the Northwest. So a lot of us tennis players trained and played a lot of pickle at Green River Community College. And that's where I was introduced to it, which is only about 30 minutes from where the sport was invented on Bainbridge Island. And that's quite a history that you have, because I had talked to Wes Gabrielson on the Pickleball Fire podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that you've actually won a 5.0 tournament in five different decades. Actually, my partner and I have, and I've won in uh, six different decades, but I didn't, like my current partner, we didn't partner till the um, 80s. So we've won them 80s, 90s, 2000s, two teens, and now 220s. I actually won tournaments in the 70s. So that would be six for me. Um, crazy. But remember back in the, those days, we didn't call them, we didn't have a 5-0 rating. You just played in the highest level, just called advanced. Those ratings haven't been, they've only been around about mm, 14, 15 years. But at the highest level, yes. Now, you've got such a long history in, in pickleball. I don't think I've ever asked anybody this question. I think you're the perfect person. Tell me, what do you think has been in pickleball done? And maybe something that's maybe not been not so good about the game. Wow. It was doing things right. I would say one of the big things that's promoted this game was Earl Hill's ambassador program, which was the pickleball version of Amway, getting players under you and more players under them and more players under them. That was unbelievable. As far as doing things wrong, the sport is hard to do things wrong with because it's so fun. The rallies are incredible. The There's nothing that makes seniors. And now here I started as a junior and now I'm 65 years old. So I've gone through every stage of pickleball. and things that just make seniors love this sport so much is it's the one time a day when they're playing pickleball that they feel young again. And I, can you imagine if there was a drug for sale where we could all feel young again? And we have it with the sport of pickleball. And why do you think that is? For one thing, if you're a crafty senior player, you've been playing a long time, you have skills, you're able to um, beat many younger players that don't, that aren't 
choosing the right shot selection. You won't beat them forever if you uh, if you involve start coaching them and teach them the shots you have and the strategies you have. But I would say most all of my pickleball is playing with younger people, and it makes you feel young. And you're out there on the court competing with young people, and I, I just it just makes you feel young when you're able to do that. Now you talk about feeling young, which I think is great. And as I mentioned before, you are a Pickleball Hall of Famer. So I think you said you've got something coming up in uh, Dripping Springs, Texas, I believe. Yeah, I leave tomorrow morning. I'm very excited about this. This is our first inaugural Hall of Fame tournament. It'll be at the wonderful Dripping, uh, a Dreamland facility in Dripping Springs, which is near Austin. Eventually, our Hall of Fame is going to be in Austin at at the Pickle Ranch, which is nearby, but that wasn't completed yet where Dripping Springs is. So we are going to have a Hall of Fame tournament. We are having a Hall of Fame clinic where other Hall of Fame members are the instructors. We'll have 10 uh, Hall of Fame instructors teaching the clinic. And we have our induction dinner. So we'll be inducting four new members to the Hall of Fame this year. And it's just, it's kind of history in the making because this is the first time we've had the Hall of Fame tournament. This is our fifth year of the Pickleball Hall of Fame, though. Now, in terms of the tournament, is that the Hall of Famers and or other people playing? Who's in that? Ma- mainly uh, everything, all of that mix. There are many of the Hall of Famers are in the tournament. And um, in fact, many of us are also going to do the hybrid wheelchair event. So we'll be, I'm going to, for the first time, learn about wheelchair pickleball. I, I won't be in a wheelchair, but my partner will be. It's a hybrid event. So I'm going to learn all about wheelchair pickleball. So anytime you can learn, you've been playing pickleball for nearly 50 years and you can learn something new. It's pretty exciting. That's great. And I've actually had a couple people on the podcast who have played in wheelchairs and, uh, and in a hybrid event. So it's uh, quite something I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to learn from them. Now, I think you also mentioned earlier that the Hall of Famers are doing a clinic and you've got a couple mm-hmm. people signed up who are pretty well known. Yeah, I, th- I think it's wonderful that Rob Cassidy and Michelle, two of our top pros, young pros in, in pickleball, they've signed up to be in the clinic. And I don't know how much we can teach them. Maybe they'll, I have actually taught a clinic with Rob Cassidy. And, and actually I did get to work with Rob Cassidy few years ago, and he was still working on a few things. But I think it's just a great gesture for them. It's out of respect that they're showing for the Hall of Fame, out of respect that's showing for the history of the sport. I just think that's such a a great gesture on the part of Rob Cassidy and Michelle Eskinel to be in the clinic. Now, will all of the current Hall of Famers be doing the clinic and they're in Texas? Most of the living Hall of Famers will be instructors at at, at this clinic. Yes. We have a couple that can't make it, but most of the Hall of Famers will be teaching at the clinic. So that'll be a special treat to get uh, special insight from every Hall of Famer that I know, because I've played against many of these Hall of Famers and they all have some little specialty things that they're famous for and shots that they have. And I, I think it'll be great for them to share those with the students. Now, can you tell me who the new inductees will be? I can't reveal that yet. Okay, wait a minute. This podcast isn't coming out for a few weeks. Oh, okay. Then that's totally different. We have on the player side, we have Steve Wong, who is a legend in the sport. He's done so, Steve's one of those guys that could have been 
inducted as a contributor or a player. And I think he's been nominated for both. Many national championships, but he's also been an innovator in the sport, starting paddle companies, teaching all over all over the place, maybe I think probably even in other countries. Very well known from the very beginning of the new modern age of pickleball. So he's a player that, that is going in this year. Also, we have Gigi Lamaster. And it's funny that I just happened to say Steve and then Gigi because Steve taught Gigi how to play back in the day in Surprise, Arizona. The great thing, Gigi's known as uh, the person that dinks with a purpose all the time. Great dinker. She's very unusual in that she did not come from tennis. She had a volleyball background. And she actually started out probably at a 3-0 level and worked her way all, all the way up to professional level. That really has never been done before. So that's Gigi. We have Yvonne Hackenberg, who her husband was, is, was inducted last year in the Hall of Fame. And together, they've won so many tournaments. I can't even begin to talk about the senior events that they've won. She's won so many women's and a mix with her husband. Uh, a great teacher. She'll be teaching with, along with her husband. They've got many years of teaching experience. And then, of course, there's Keith Beisel, who is into the Hall of Fame as a contributor. You know, that's such a great group of people. And let's go ahead and next, let's talk about an instructional aspect of the game. The drop serve is something that you really introduced to pickleball and started talking about it a few years ago. Tell me, how did that come up and why did it? I was really tired of how difficult it is to judge if, but now we're, this is, remember now we're talking before the Zane serve and all the crazy new serves. So I was really upset. I know how hard it was for referees to judge if a serve was legal or not. First off, it's so difficult to tell where the waist is. It's so difficult to tell if you have an upward motion it only has to be one degree upward to be considered underhand one degree downwards, illegal one degree upwards, legal. And so possible to tell if part of the paddle is above your wrist at contact. In fact, you can, if you talk to any eye specialist, you cannot possibly see all those things simultaneously. Where I knew if you dropped a ball and just dropped it, no matter how tall you were, it was never going to bounce above your waist. It's impossible. So I did it initially to create a serve that it would take a lot of pressure off the referee on what is legal or not. And then just allow everything. Just drop it. And every, who doesn't matter if we have downward motion or upward, you know, or sideward motion, or if part of your paddle is above your wrist. When I first introduced it, people were saying, oh, it'd be a dominant serve. I knew it wouldn't because contact point is well below the net. It's turned out it has not been a dominant serve. It's been proven that. And otherwise, the pros would use it on the circuit that they are allowed to use it, and they haven't been using it very often at all. The, the side benefits, it's been easier to teach beginners. Much easier to teach a beginner how to serve, especially kids. I taught elementary PE for 30 years. It was always easier for me to teach a, a child to hit a serve off of a, of a drop. And then the other thing is it solved a lot of people's yips problems in serving. So over, uh, I would say the pickleball community is overwhelmingly supporting the drop serve now, a year after, um, nearly a year after it's been introduced. That's right. And it is a provisional serve here in 2021. And it looks like the USA Pickleball will be making a decision about it, of course, prior to the end of the year. And, and I'll have to say, I'm absolutely one of the proponents of that serve. I come from a racquetball background, so I'm absolutely used to 
bouncing the ball before I serve. So mm-hmm. when, you know, the drop serve became provisional this year, I immediately started using it. And I'll tell you, I would be really disappointed if they stop it because I'm absolutely with you when beginners come in, it is just so much easier for them. There'll be a lot of people upset if it changes because you consider how many people have learned the sport just since that sport, that serve became legal. And most of those people have learned with a drop serve. Very true. Good point. Yeah. There's so many people who've come into the sport the last couple of years and certainly in, in 2021. And one of the things that you did, especially I think quite a bit more maybe than usual during COVID, especially in 2020, was you had some great videos that I took a look at on YouTube and you did a little bit of a, you did a series on a lot of different things, but one of the things that really caught my eye were some of the misconceptions that people have about pickleball. And so I'm just going to go through three of them that I saw that I thought were pretty interesting. One of them is when somebody says, oh, I hit the ball too high. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a, a big one. When I go play rec play and I'm playing with a stranger, maybe someone you know who, who's not familiar with dinking the ball short, which means doesn't go far past the net and they'll hit a ball and it's just net height, but it goes net height still at the no volley line on the other side. And then the opponents get to hit it out of the air. And one of the biggest uh, mistakes people make is hitting their dinks too far, not too high. If you notice, most of the teams that are winning matches are the teams that get to hit the first balls out of the air, even at the pro level, in fact, at every level. And uh, so it's, you can't hit one too high and too far. That's doubly bad. But oftentimes it's just that you hit a ball too far. And so what's the best way to make sure you don't hit the ball too far? I am a big proponent of teaching people how to hit lift dinks, especially all the way up. You can become a 5-0 player and just hit lift dinks. And they're, they're, they are, some people call them dead dinks. They're close to the net. But the only way to attack those is to hit you back with a high ball. And so uh, the way to do that is to let the ball fall on your paddle as much as you can and lift and open your paddle face. Now, if the other team is are hitting aggressive dinks to you, you're unable to hit a, a lift dink. You just have to be able to block it and have dead hands and it will go short. And so with the lift dink, then you're taking the ball fairly low below the net? Yes. Yeah. But also then you're doing the same thing back to your opponent and you're and when you do that, you're hit. You're not allowing them to hit an aggressive dink because it's so close to the net. They can't hit their aggressive slice dinks or their aggressive top spin dinks. Pretty much, they do a dead dink back. Dead dink back. My whole idea is to be in very good shape, at least better shape than the people my age to win national championships, and to be able to do that all day long, and to block if they decide to hit me in the face. All right, on to misconception two was you should hit the ball to your opponent's feet. Oh, yeah. That's along the same line. So if you are playing top players, let's say that I go and I decide I'm going to, me and my Randy Byther, my senior partner, and I are going to go play Eric Lang and Wes Gabrielson in a doubles match. If we try to hit the ball, and and every rally is going to wind up where all four people are at the net at that level. Let's say we try to hit the ball at their feet. The problem is the the dink that's going to go to their feet, they're going to hit because of their reach, especially Eric Lang, someone tall like that. They're going to hit it net height, 
reach out and pop that ball right at you. And, and again, it's along the same lines as, as the first topic we, we talked about. They're getting to hit the first ball out of the air when you try to hit to their feet. It doesn't go to their feet. They hit it out of the air before it gets to their feet. Again, it's that same idea of you want to put the ball closer to the net so they can't take it out of the air. Especially at the higher levels. All right. I think the third one I saw was, as far as the misconceptions go, hitting to the deep person. Oh, and again, this is the high level team. So let's say you are the receiving team. So you're hitting the second ball and now you're up at the net. But they hit a pretty good third shot dink. And if and those kind of teams, what they do, they have the non-hitter come to the net. But it, right when the hitter says mine, the non-hitter's already at the net. If you try to hit that ball back to the deep person, that guy that's at the net, he knows it's going there and he comes across and poaches that ball. That's why, so you have to hit short again. But this is at the high level. That's a big mistake to try to hit deep when you know that person's going to come in, then you're giving them a ball out of the air or you're giving a po- an easy poach for the person that came into the net. So then rather than hitting it deep, you said you want to hit it short. Do you want to hit it yeah. short to the person already at the net or the person coming into the net? So if the person already at the net is one of those guys that's really going to come across and poach, hitting behind them short would be the best shot. And oh. that a lot of mixed doubles in the pro mixed doubles. The girl is hitting a nice, great third shot. Her guys can't come in. And where does he go? He goes to the middle of the court. He doesn't go uh, to his side of the court. He goes to the middle of the court, forcing the other team to hit a fourth that's short either behind him or short to the partner. All right. I definitely appreciate these high-level strategies because a lot of times when I have people on the podcast, we're talking about more at the beginner and intermediate level. So Given all your experience, are there any other misconceptions that you want to call out to help people play at the highest level? I would say another misconception that a, a lower level players have is they watch the pros hit topspin and they watch them hit slice and then they and they're a three oh player or a three five player. So they're probably not ready yet to hit that top spin and hit that slice there's other things they could do to improve their game that's one and then the other thing those same players think in order to hit that top spin they have to roll their paddle over the top of the ball and they over roll it they don't make it gentle and they just hit everything in the net so that's a mechanical thing i would say that's probably another big a big uh misconception that amateurs have when they see pros spin the ball is that they're really rolling over it or under it and really they're doing a Real gentle roll over the ball, slight. Now, one of the other things I think you mentioned during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic when we were all really locked down is you you did have a practice partner. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, it's, this is a great thing about our sport of pickleball is, is the people you meet uh, on your journey as a teacher or a player. And one of my students, it was about three years ago, Spencer Laurent came to my house. He's about 24 at the time. 25. He was coming from high-level table tennis, a junior champion from Minnesota, started taking lessons from me. And players, I could tell pretty soon, because part of the lessons is we do a lot of skinny singles, and I'm beating them pretty soundly at the beginning, but he's starting to get getting better and better. And so he was 
he became my practice partner over over COVID because he lived near me. We were doing all the crazy things not to get COVID because we didn't know, you know, nobody knew anything. We were disinfecting the ball. We had our plastic gloves on. But uh, I thought, hey, Spencer, since you are a Twitch broadcaster and you have the cameras and everything, let's shoot some videos. So we started shooting instructional videos that came became very popular. And um, in fact, I, just recently I became a Selkirk player and Selkirk is going to be putting those on their uh, Selkirk TV site. So I'm excited about that. So maybe, so we'll get a lot more views, hopefully, on, with Selkirk TV with those. I was really proud of those videos. Spencer did such a great job. I'd write the lesson plans. We became, I felt like a, a movie producer or director, we'd come up with the lesson plan. We could just whip out three or four in uh, no time after we got the hang of it. I was really impressed with the quality of those videos and uh, plan to continue watching. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few out. We did we did quite a few. I think he's still got a couple more in the can and that he still hasn't released yet. And he's gone on as a successful broadcaster in the world of pickleball. He's the cameraman for APP on Court 2. I think, and then he also just got the gig as uh, broadcasting the next gen tournament series with the younger players playing, and he'll be broadcasting that all on his own. That's his own company. So, pretty proud of Spencer, not only as a player, but being creative with filming and broadcasting. Since you mentioned that you're now a Selkirk sponsored player, which yeah. pickleball paddle do you use and why do you use it? I use the C1. Vanguard, and it is the, it's one of the softest paddles on the market. It might be the softest paddle on the market. In other words, very good for resetting and controlling the ball. And again, remember I said earlier, my style is to dink everything short as much as possible until I get the ball I want. That ball, that that particular style paddle does exactly that for me. So uh, that's why I chose that paddle. And I, I like the company. I like the family that started this. I've known them since they started. True, and they have a passion for the sport. What else? The other thing I like is they're truly, really good players. The brothers and I respect that we have a company where we actually have people who have a passion for playing the game at the same time. Now I'm sure after hearing this podcast, your knowledge is amazing with the game, and you've been so successful for so many years. If somebody wants to reach out to you for a clinic or lessons, where's the best place? Wow. It's so funny. Because, so I'm a retired PE teacher and I teach lessons all day on Thursdays at my house in Oregon. And I'll do a few clinics where I travel. Like I, I, I heard Wes mention the clinic we did in Asheville, North Carolina. That was such a great experience. I did one with Rob Davidson at on Bainbridge Island, where the sport was invented, that was so awesome. After we were done teaching the clinic, one of the evenings, we went to the original pickleball court and played a game with wooden paddles and a kosum. That's That was the original ball we used back in the day and played on that court. A friend of mine actually owns that court. Scott Stover bought that. I played against him in 76. He bought that from the Pritchard family. So I've got to do things like that, but really I am pretty booked. Occasionally people will come from out of town and find my Esperanto at Comcast.com and get a hold of me. I just had a couple from New York take lessons from me that were in town for a wedding. 
but I'm pretty booked and I don't want to teach the rest of the week because I want to play and then I want to go fishing. You certainly do have your priorities and I'm sure people will appreciate that. All right, Steve, it was great to have you on the Pickleball Fire podcast. I love everything you've done for the game and I'm so glad you're continued to be out on the courts. Oh, thank you. I hope I'm still playing for many more years. In fact, I'm building a barn dominium right now. It'll be my next house so that I can have an indoor pickleball court. And uh, that's so that I can invite all my friends to play all the time. It's all about it's all about the friends you develop in this game. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you for listening to the Pickleball Fire podcast. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to give it a five-star review on Apple iTunes.